What's up, everybody? Welcome to Show Me the Meaning, Wisecracks Movie Podcast. Show me the meaning! Jared, guess what? What? I came here to do two things today. You know what they are? <laughs> to One of them is chew bubblegum bubble and show you the meaning. And I'm all Fuck out yeah. of bubblegum, baby! <laughs> I thought you were going to say you're all out of meaning. Uh, <laughs> no, no, I got plenty of that. <laughs> Let's cool. do this. Well, guys, you can already tell who's here for the podcast today. We got Ryan. Hey, film fans. And we got Alec. Hey. And today we're talking about the 1988 film They Live, starring Roddy Piper and Keith David, directed by John Carpenter. Booyah! Now, be- booyah for sure. Now, before we get everyone's initial thoughts about this movie, I want to give a shout out to some of the great people who have been leaving us reviews on iTunes. Once again, if you have the time, give us a five-star review if you feel like it. You know, it really helps us out. Uh, we got a great one from Lucy Han. She says, love listening to this podcast. They are so insightful and passionate. Thank you, Lucy. We got one from the Stangus. He said he was turned on to Videodrome and Network from the podcast. Oh, yeah. That's the best news anyone could ever tell yeah. me. Our uh, work here is done. Exactly. Then he says you have to do a philosophy of the leftovers. I feel like Austin is so into that show. Austin is supposed to be here today, but he got the time wrong, God. and I feel like we've had that conversation before, and Austin is into that show, so good looking out, Stangus. This next one is from, I think this person just basically threw their hands on the keyboard. It's Ufifo Yakjit. <laughs> he says, <laughs> he says, love this podcast, just really into this kind of movie discussion. Well, thank you. And then this last one is from... That nickname is taken. Try again. If you love movies, then this is the podcast for you. The Wisecrack crew and guests are entertaining, and the analysis is thought-provoking. So, again, thanks, everybody, who takes the time to send, to give us a review on iTunes. really helps us out with the algorithm and all that other stuff that's controlling our lives. So if you have the time, we really appreciate it. But without further ado, let's get first impressions on this movie, They Live. What was it like the first time you watched it? What was it like re-watching it for this podcast? Let's start with Ryan. Um, well, I love this movie. I love John Carpenter. He holds a special place in my heart. He's done more for genre movies than anyone else, I think. Um, yeah, I, I, uh, the first time I saw this, I saw it way too young. I, I don't think I got it, the, the satirical aspects or, or, or what I was trying to say. And, but now subsequently I've watched it over and over again. And, uh, it's one of my favorites. I mean, R- R- Roddy Piper and Keith David, dude, Keith David is one of, my favorite actors because of this movie and the thing um, he can just, he has such a crazy screen presence. I don't have much to say other than fucking hell. Yeah. They live. Let's go. Are you going to tell the story of when you accidentally showed up at John Carpenter's house? <laughs> All right. Yeah. When I first came to LA, like 10 years ago, I was so gung ho about, I really wanted to work on a John Carpenter movie. I heard that he was going to make a new movie. So I immediately looked up the production company to go bring my resume there and I found two addresses. One of them wasn't open that day. The other one uh, uh, was way up in the hills, and I went to it, and I knocked on the door, and John Carpenter answered in his pajamas, and it was his house, and all of his dogs were there, and I was just standing there with my resume, and uh, I was starstruck. I, I didn't know. I, I lit, my first reaction was to just play dumb. Stu- I don't know why I did that, but I, I basically just said, uh is this the production company for John Carpenter's movie? (laughs) (laughs) And he's like, no, get out, get out. He didn't say get off of my, his look, his, his eyes said, get off of my property. But I'm just like, okay, sorry. And then I just walked away ashamed. (laughs) So did that discourage you from giving a resume to the other address? Well, no, I did go drop it off there later, but I definitely like it. And they never called me back, but it definitely it just discouraged me in general that John Carpenter, (laughs) I ruined his afternoon, it seems like. (laughs) Yeah, this is an aside, but all these narratives that Ryan and I grew up with of all the people who just took that extra step to to uh, really put themselves out there. I don't know. I think all that had kind of run its course. And now when you take that extra step to show people that you're committed and passionate, it just comes off as creepy. It can. Yeah, it definitely did that day. Yeah. (laughs) Alec, what about you, man? Uh, This movie, I saw it, I think around college. I feel like I was under the influence of a few things, but I loved it at the time. Um, Watching it again, I definitely caught on to a lot more that was going on in the film. Uh, But really, I love this film as a political metaphor and also as a documentary about Los Angeles. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) 
Uh, okay, cool. All yeah, right. I, I'm trying to remember the first time I saw this movie. I can't re- I think I saw it sometime in college, and I remember liking it. And then I saw The Pervert's Guide to Ideology, mm. and that made me re-watch the movie. So I saw it a second time, and I liked it even more. And then when I watched it last night, I liked it, and I liked it for all the classic John Carpenter reasons. I love the violence. I love the machine guns. I love the kicking ass and bubble gum. And as far as the message, Alec and I have been having a host of conversations recently about the nature of criticism in media, and this definitely was an interesting addition to that conversation. So I'm I'm excited to get into the meat of what this movie's trying to say and what that means for our cultural predicament today. But love John Carpenter, dig the movie. Anyway, let's go into a recap. So homeless drifter John Nada finds employment at a construction site where he meets Frank, who helps him find a homeless shelter. At the shelter, he's exposed to a pirate message of a revolutionary claiming that there is a ruling class that has lulled the masses into submission. While they live, we sleep. Next day, John stumbles upon the headquarters of the revolutionary effort at a church. After the place is raided by the cops, John finds a box of sunglasses. When he puts them on, he can see the ideology behind all elements of commercial life and the true identity of the elite, which is weird aliens. They alert the authorities that he can see the truth behind the veil of ideology, and John starts killing all the aliens who stand in his way. John takes a woman named Holly hostage and hides out in her place. She kicks him out, and after some initial resistance, John exposes Frank to the truth. John and Frank meet up with the other members of the resistance, including Holly, and plan to destroy the signal that's hiding their true identity when the base is raided. Using the aliens' watches, John and Frank escape to the aliens' underground base where the aliens control the media. John and Frank start shooting the place up and find Holly, who kills Frank because she believes that humanity can't win. John then kills Holly and sacrifices his life, destroying the alien signal. Now, all are awake and the aliens are exposed. End of movie. Hey, all you true crime fans, this is Mike Ferguson. And this is Mike Morphe. And we'd like to invite you to listen to our podcast, Criminology. Launched in 2017, we've covered a variety of strange cases from murders to missing persons. Some of the cases are ones you may not have heard of. Other cases we cover are some of the most historic in true crime. There are 200 episodes of Criminology available to binge on right now. And new episodes come out every Saturday night. Subscribe to Criminology today, wherever you listen to your podcast. Well, you got to say also, like, uh, it ends with <laughs> with a woman noticing that she's having sex with an alien. <laughs> of course. I love I movies that, that end on a joke. I think that that's a really nice uh, touch. Yeah. Yeah. I dig that. When, when it's done well, obviously, it can suck. I can't T- think taste- of an example. Yeah. Tasteful jokes. I, I, I guess that's a tasteful joke. I don't really know how tasteful this movie is kind of going for in general. <laughs> tasteful is not the right word. Yeah. All right, so let's get the kind of obvious reading out of the way. The Matrix. Uh, Before the Matrix. I kind of, yeah. I mean, I think the more on-the-nose thing is that basically this movie is a critique of ideology, a critique of capitalism. The aliens are basically a stand-in for capitalism. Right. So I think in, in the episode of South Park, the most recent episode of South Park, Josh the Marxist Box said it best. The worker is kept submissive by the institutions and the ideology of the bourgeoisie. Uh, <laughs> which is basically exactly what this movie is about. Um, as uh, a friend of the podcast and person that we interviewed once, philosopher Slavoj Žižek said, the glasses show you dictatorship and democracy, the invisible order that sustains your apparent freedom. So basically what's going on here is that the glasses reveal the ideology that, maintain, that maintains the status quo and, and consolidates power for the aliens, in this case the elite, both metaphorically and literally in the case of the movie. Uh, The movie's set in a time where capitalists are closing factories and giving themselves raises. Uh, The aliens are later revealed to be treating the Earth as a form of colonial imperialism. We see a lot of things going on in this movie. We have classic Marxist alienation. So at one point, Frank says to John Nada, he says, the whole deal is some kind of crazy game. The name of the game is Make It Through Life. Only... Everyone is out for themselves and looking to do you in. You do what you can, but I'm going to do my best to blow your ass away. And uh, Everyone's looking to sell out every day. 
Exactly. The revolutionary fervor is subdued by fear-mongering, integrating irritators into the system, and perpetuating the belief that you just have to, quote, wait your turn. Um, I was reading this article. It's called The Mysteries of Los Angeles, or They Live and 8 O'Clock in the Morning, which is, I guess, the book or the short story that it's it's based off of. And uh, it's by Mark Decker. And he says, unsurprisingly, the year the film was released saw populist backlash against the young urban professionals who seemed to be thriving while America's working class suffered through layoffs and plant closings. And just it's interesting. You think about this movie and you think about Vampire's Kiss and American Psycho like that image of yuppiedom is very much what this movie is reacting to. Well, also, I think uh, so. 1987, there was a big stock market crash. And early in the film, they talk about um, in Denver, a bunch of banks closed. And I'm not positive that's in reference to that. Maybe the the film was in production before that or filming before then. But I think it is. So so on one hand, in general, you have the loss of sort of like industrial jobs in America that happened over a few decades. But also, I think one specific shock was in 1987, this crash. Yeah, so he goes on to say that uh, during the summer of 1988, Tompkins Square riots in Manhattan had people chanting, die, yuppie scum. Consequently, it's not much of a surprise that a movie in which yuppies are revealed to be intergalactic scum and then summarily executed by a working class hero was released a few months later. So this movie definitely resonated a lot with the people at the time. Um, John Carpenter's the man of the people, dude. (laughs) He is. And I think you can see that not only in the message of this movie, but just the general movie choices that he makes. He tries to make crowd pleasers and he's damn good at it. Yeah. I mean, think about Big Trouble in Little China. uh, You know, basically every Kurt Russell character in John Carpenter movies, you know. (laughs) And he's just, he knows how to make a massive audience get scared. So one thing that I didn't realize on the first time, I guess I probably knew, but I didn't, it didn't stick with me, is that Roddy Piper's character is homeless. Um, and throughout the whole movie, I was thinking of the, the John Steinbeck quote. So the misquote of it is socialism never took root in America because the poor see themselves not as exploited proletariat, but as tempor- temporarily embarrassed millionaires. The real quote is everyone was a temporarily embarrassed capitalist. But that is kind of what this movie is uh, in that all the people who sort of want to maintain the status quo of the aliens there, it is for that dream of they're just like a, you know, just one lucky break away from being a movie star or getting into the underground lair and stuff like the um, the guy at the end that they meet that was watching TV earlier on complaining about that they were hacking the TV situation. And John Steinbeck also kind of was writing about the Great Depression and drifters and stuff like that. It was just a random thought I had. Yeah, so what you were saying earlier about, so there's a part in the movie where John Otta says, my chance will come. I believe in America. Yeah. I follow the rules. Everybody has got their own hard times these days. And then when he puts on the glasses, he no longer believes this. He believes that there is a consolidated power structure that is u- using this ideology to lull the masses into submission and just consolidate power. If any, it, it, I mean, I, I think that it's a really well-dramatized point and really interesting. And I think I even read somewhere saying something like, it's the only movie that has a very overt leftist slant that uses ideology as its core, basically, plot mechanism, which is super interesting. But if you guys are ready, I actually want to move on to what I think the movie got wrong and the movie in the context of today. Yeah, let's do it. So, to me, this movie is another installment in what is essentially a long tradition of false consciousness in movies. So there's The Matrix, Eyes Wide Shut, Logan's Run. All these movies are essentially about you have been lied to. And there's probably a whole bunch that uh, more that I'm forgetting that I just remembered off the top of my head that Ryan can probably rattle off. But the whole idea is that There is a veil of lies being put over your eyes, and you need to be awakened to the truth. And in this movie, there's this general sense that waking up to the truth is painful, that the lie is comforting. And when you ask somebody to put on the glasses and see the truth, they will do anything to resist it because it's so painful. So famously, there is the fight. 14-minute fist fight. (laughs) Exactly. There's the 14-minute fist fight where Frank is... 
for some reason, so resistant to just putting on sunglasses because he doesn't want to fuck up just the status quo. He's making it work. He doesn't want anything to fuck with that. Well, also his whole character is like he keeps his head down and he hasn't seen his family in forever and just wants to stay out of trouble's way. Um, Exactly. And and I think that kind of speaks to, you know, one of the themes in this movie is individualism. And he is kind of, in a way, rightly, like just looking out for himself. And we see the sort of the pitfalls of that. Well, right. and also he, he really, you know, we're talking about the everyman, like there is a big part of the everyman that wants to just, you know, not deal, get in drama, you know, they, uh, uh, let me just live my life with my family and um, I'll stay out of it no matter what. And it's just like an instinct. And I guess, you know, that's kind of what John Carpenter is getting at. Right. So there's a couple other points in the movie. So they say, if you wear the glasses too long, it feels like a knife in your skull. And then there's a part where we're first introduced to the homeless shelter and you see the revolutionary pirate message come through and the TV person on the TV says that the elite are keeping us sedated and a guy who's watching says, oh, blow it out your ass. There's even later somebody is watching the same message and there's like a little girl and she says, daddy, I have a headache. But I got to tell you guys, and I, and Alec probably knows what I'm about to say because we talk about it a lot. I think this is wrong. Well, this hold, is not... hold on. I know exactly what you're going to say, but there's also a line yeah. where Nada says, it's like a drug wearing these glasses makes you high, but you come down hard. Yeah, I, I remember that. And that just seems odd to me because the movie seems to be telling us two things at once. So I think it is painful to put on the glasses at, uh, at first, but once you put them on, I think the movie's saying it is addictive. Although he's constantly like rubbing the the bridge of his nose, um, like after he puts the contacts in, so I yeah maybe that is a sort of a confused point of the movie. So Jared, what are you saying the problem is exactly? So I think that something strange has happened where we have decades of films trying to tell people to wake up from the lie perpetrated by some sort of shadowy agent or controlling class, but I think that what we have experienced today is that this is not painful. If anything, it's the opposite. People love it. People are addicted to this idea of being awakened to the truth, of that, oh my God, everything that I used to believe before was a total lie. I mean, look at all areas of our politics today. It's all based on this essential false consciousness awakening thing. We can't even agree. The problem is we can't agree what the, quote, lie is that we're awakening to. I mean, on one side of the aisle, you have woke politics, which wakes you up to issues of social and racial justice. On the other side, you have red pill, which wakes you up to a sense of ideological hegemony in media and academia. You got flat earthers who wake you up to the fact that the earth is flat. You got anti-vaxxers. You got Alex Jones. I think if this movie came out today, it would be considered the most Alex Jones movie ever. (laughs) In well, this movie, there was a line the media Piper, is like, that sounds like Alex Jones. That sounds like an Alex Jones delivery. <laughs> the last I, act of this movie is them infiltrating the media that is literally being controlled by basically lizard people. <laughs> I, I think that that today, like the climate we're in is a product of stuff like they live, you know, like it is. Like, and like, that's that's the interesting part. Well, yeah, exactly. So 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 to answer your question, I think it's kind of a, a paradox to, to ask if this movie could come out today because today was shaped by like media like they live where it's like people trying to get you to wake up and everyone seems to have bought into it. And now it's just become ingrained in our culture, you know, and every, people grow up thinking like, oh, yeah, like the the ruling class just doesn't give a fuck about poor people. And uh, that's just a fact of life, basically. So. One thing that I think is really interesting, I haven't seen Logan's Run or some of the other movies you mentioned, but between the, like the this and The Matrix, and I probably these other things, but I'm not going to say that because I haven't seen them, is like the main political metaphor for today, right? Like you've got the red pill in The Matrix is Neo's choice between the red and the blue pill, which was sort of a- appropriated by men's rights activists, but I've also seen it outside of that context, like on the left and the right to like take the red pill is to make the difficult choice. Um, And also, you know, in this movie to to put on the glasses. And I would argue, and this is what the movie kind of says, like making that choice is hard. But once you're in there, it's kind of addictive. And and like if, if you think about it, it makes sense, right? Like let's just say you're switching 
sides, right? Either you're going Democrat to Republican or Republican to Democrat. Your whole world is built on this idea. You've made these social connections. And for you to renounce that often involves you sometimes giving up friendships, uh, you know, giving up certain kinds of social status if you're involved in certain organizations. So it's a painful process. But then once you've already made that jump, you're fucking addicted to it. And I think what is interesting about these films is just how often they're used in literally everything. So for, for people who've listened uh, to the Flat Earth episode of this podcast, I spent way too much time watching Flat Earth videos, which dovetailed into like weird anti-Semitic shit. And all of these videos on YouTube will cut to the scene from they live of him taking off the glasses but whether like one of them was literally the truth you know behind the billboards was for this person that jews were controlling the world so like it, it, the content almost doesn't matter it's just the fact that you're being awoken to this greater truth so i've been i think i mentioned either on this podcast or the last one that i've been reading a lot of McLuhan lately mm -hmm. and the way i've kind of been thinking about this is that cinema laid the foundation for this narrative of being awakened to the truth but it never really I, sank in i don't and think, I that's think true, that go, go ahead well i think that this message was only able to widely reach people via the internet and so in our inglorious bastards podcast a couple weeks ago we mentioned how Tarantino's thesis that cinema is the thing that becomes this cultural totem, basically, that definitively for the rest of history will define who the good guys are and who the bad guys are. But Lux brought up the point that, yeah, but he was wrong because once the Internet came about, that was confounded entirely. And that and the Internet is the new motivator of culture, not cinema. Yeah, but I don't think that this idea started with cinema. Like, No, I, but it definitely, I, th I still think that more people have seen The Matrix than have read 1984. Sure, but I think, like, if you look at historical movements, like, for instance, I was reading a lot of Upton Sinclair, and he was, like, big into writing about things socialists were doing. And it's, like, this kind of dynamic of... Like, do you know the the lie that structures your life is like all these fucking rich people are sending you off to war? Like, this is why the Russian Revolution succeeded is because, you know, in a sense that they red pilled people. But even historically speaking, the idea that the wool has been pulled over your eyes and you have to go buy it really philosophically goes all the way back to Plato with the 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 allegory of the cave. Yeah. yeah, I guess my question to that is how if you took ancient Greece or ancient Athens, how many people actually comprehended that? How many people actually comprehended, you know, the forms and all that stuff? Uh, Probably I, not, not. Not a ton. Yeah, exactly. And what I'm arguing is that the internet made it so that everybody understands or a large amount of people understand this concept of being there's reality and then there's unreality and you've been sleeping in unreality and here's reality. And it's made it so accessible to people that it almost got a little bit out of control because now everyone is in on this. And another thing is you're saying well, – one other thing I disagree with is you're saying that it's still painful for people to awaken themselves because it will isolate themselves from their pre-established communities. But on the contrary, I think that we live in a time where there's so much isolation and alienation that people will – are incentivized to join these, quote, awakened, red-pilled, woke communities in order to be part of a community. Yeah, I think that's a good point in that people will often find community, uh, and that is true. But I'm just, so there's that kind of person, and they exist. But I also, like, I just imagine if I decided to go full flat earther, which I know is a joke in the office that they think it's going to happen. Uh, <laughs> but, like, I would... I don't know what my girlfriend would do, but I think she'd probably dump me eventually. Like that would be a painful process. <laughs> See, I, I, I would um, argue that the seeds of, of this kind of thinking was kind of more planted in the sixties, seventies, like Bob Dylan and, and the civil rights movement and stuff. And just the fact, you know, the, the, the hippies and stuff, the fact that the ruling class, your parents, the, what your parents taught you isn't necessarily, you know, how things are and stuff and and yeah like and then that morphs and uh, and gets expressed through movies and films the matrix but they live and stuff but yeah I, I think that there's that that yeah bob dylan he's who i uh think is responsible for well a couple differences like first of all there was a consolidated counterculture 
You know, right. Not all of these small things like woke red pill, anti-vaxxer, flatter. But this all, all evolved from that, you know? No, but but I think there were movements, and I'm not saying that socialism was the one movement, but it's one that I'm familiar with, where you have, like, huge scores of people. And I can give the Russia example where everyone's like, why are we fighting World War One? It was fed to us by the elites. We shouldn't be in here. The Germans are not our enemies. Let's withdraw from the war. So that there, you have that. But those ideas also make their way to America, especially during World War Two, and you have – sorry, not World War Two, World War One, and you have – socialist anarchists and other people like that disseminating prop, uh, propaganda or like anti-war propaganda that is to that effect and it ends up in the Supreme court. And it like, it wasn't isolated instances. Now I'm not saying it was a hundred percent saturation because like, every, you know, I agree with you, Jared. I think there's an element of scale where everyone has the internet. And I think especially everyone today is maybe aware of like the cynical way in that, which like media operates and all of this stuff. So, so, so yeah, maybe it's worse, but I don't think we could, I don't even think it started in the early 1900s necessarily. It's just the earliest example that I'm familiar with. I guess I'm just saying that it's trendier now. Sure. Than oh, ever. yeah. Sure. Yeah. We. I think we can all say it's pretty trendy right now. So m- more to my last question, I'm curious what you guys think. Do you guys think that if this movie came out today, would it be considered, as Zizek claims, a masterpiece of the Hollywood left, or would it be considered far right? I think if it came out this very second... Even as I was watching this, and I love this movie, I was like, oh, Roddy Piper's like that Pizzagate guy. Like, he shows up to uh, Comet Pizza with a gun and is like, show me where the sex dungeon is. So, like, even me, as a huge fan of the movie, can't help but make that connection. So, if it came out today, people would be like, what the fuck are you doing? Like, what is this some Alex Jones shit? See, I I, I think it's far left. I mean, people on the right like capitalism, and, you know, they think that they would see the exact opposite of of what Roddy Piper's complaining about. It's like, yeah, sure. I want to work hard and get all this shit for it. You know, what's wrong with that motherfucker? You know, like, uh, that's but, what, but, but I mean, but more to Alex's point, you even see people interpreting the film today as a comment on like anti-Semitism. It's like, Oh, I get it. Now the glasses show you that the Jews control everything. And that, that's these, like they... a, that's one person on the internet. You know, I, I don't think that, <laughs> I think that, yeah, that but, that's but, hard but how to do... really, uh, uh, find in the movie. It's it, it, fine. It, well, I, it's I don't... not in the movie. And you're totally right about that. John, no, Carp- you're totally right about that. But our discourse today, and this is mostly what I'm talking about is, built upon reacting to individual morons on the internet <laughs> well that's a whole other conversation to me and yeah well, you're right you know like 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 that's a, a a cancer we have to get rid of somehow i i'm not asking how it ought to be consumed i'm saying how would it be consumed today i i think we all agree like it's a left-wing movie regardless of whether we're well, individually left-wing or not well yeah and and, and uh John Carpenter had some quote I, I wish I had in front of me, but but he he said like the impetus for this movie was he was just surfing around the the channels one day and he just realized just how every TV show, every ad, every you know documentary or whatever uh, that was on news program was designed to sell you something, and so uh, and no one really thinks about that. So to me, like it's it it's he was it had a very narrow uh, a focus on on capitalism, human greed, and just uh, uh, you know that kind of stuff. Uh, uh, materialism, basically, and um, and so to extrapolate all this other stuff, you know, Jews and stuff. I, you know, is that uh, that that person's problem, I guess. But uh, uh, I'm not saying those people are right. I just think it's interesting that for for as I poison my brain with hours and hours of weird ass fucking conspiracy content, right? That. It just keeps coming like there were multiple videos I watched and I remember the the anti-Semitic one specifically where these fucking insane theories, people are like, yeah, this is exactly like they live. Um, and and I, a, a conversation Jared and I were having earlier, um, which, again, is nothing against the movie, but uh, I was wondering if all criticism is impotent. Uh, with Jared, because it doesn't matter like what book you make, you it doesn't matter what you write or what film you make. No matter what you do, people will take it to be the exact opposite. In the Flat Earth documentary, there's the guy who is holding up 1984 to justify his weird Flat Earth shit. Uh, I was even reading earlier. This is like a crisis that we've come upon at Wisecrack that we're trying to figure out how to make a video about. But basically, if when I was in school, we read 1984 as a cautionary tale about blank. 
If we can't even agree what blank is anymore, if we have all these differing social factions that believe that the blank is different, then the movie, be- or, I'm sorry, the book, 1984, just becomes completely useless and completely impotent, and that's frightening to me. I think people would shrug off they live if it came off out today. I mean, it would just get lost in the media and go, oh, yeah, that's that, you know, like – People would write think pieces about, oh, they spent $30 million to make a movie about how uh, bad <laughs> corporate How the mainstream media is are. lying to you, you know? like, But you could definitely read it that way if it came out today. Well, Ryan, let me ask you this. Do you think if this were released today, or even I'm thinking of if Wisecrack released a video about They Live Today, there would be a ton of commenters just being like, yeah, this movie is about the fake liberal news. I, I mean, I, I mean, someone can well, make look, that there, argument, but you, I, I, yeah, I, and it wouldn't even be the worst argument. There's the whole last act of the movie is literally about the elite that act as newscasters that are trying to perpetuate certain narratives to keep them to keep themselves powerful. I mean, that is essentially the argument that people make against the mainstream media. Right. Well, I think. But not really. The mainstream media, you know, is known for, like like today. It, uh, they're not just trying to pacify you like they are and they live. You know, it's like, you know, they're spending two years on the Russia scandal. They're trying to break down, you know, tr- speak truth to power. Like, if anything, um, journalism today is like crazy. It's like gossip journalism. You know, it's like it's not what's in they live, which is just like them going, wow, things are so good right now. You know, just go out and buy a car. You know, you don't see that much today. I mean, you could argue that the fact that it's always news brought to you by X sponsor and cut to commercial, it is saturated by that because the messaging of the news can't conflict with the thing that's giving them money, which is sponsorship and commercialism. Yeah. What I I thought was interesting is that even as he's reading a magazine, I think it might be news or or whatever, um, it still has these sort of like hidden messages behind them. And like this kind of Noam Chomsky's point about the media in and he's speaking in a very left-wing way but about you have as you said jared advertisers who kind of dictate what can and can't be said um you kind of have a revolving door of like government officials who appear on the news and steer the conversation in a certain way that in the they live format kind of functions as a you know no critical thought no new ideas and that kind of stuff it is there to to maintain the status quo so there's a part in the movie where there's a woman on the tv And she's saying, sometimes I watch TV and I stop being myself. I'm a star. I have my own talk show or I'm on the news getting out of a limo. All I ever have to do is be famous. People watch me and they love me. I never grow old and never die. So I think basically the reason why this is in the movie is because they're trying to give us an example of what it is to be lulled into submission by the media, by the ideology and stuff like that. Because, and, um, you know, my whole story or my whole life has basically been that nothing affected me as profoundly as cinema when I was a kid and cinema was my escape and cinema was the thing that really allowed me to transcend all the bullshit that I grew up with and so Zizek who analyzes this movie and he says something very smart he says when we think we are escaping into our dreams that is when we are in ideology it made me just realize that when you think that you are escaping into your dreams, when these movies, this art gives you that transcendence, that lulling, so to say, is when the system has you by the balls the most. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's... No, a good... Jared, no! <laughs> no, I love this point because I think it's, you know, we we could even construe this, uh, well, we could construe what Zizek said or possibly this movie as like a critique of certain kinds of red pilly stuff because people want to be free of whatever the thing is that they hate. But even the thing that they, that they dream of being free from is itself dictated by ideology. Um, so if it's that the state like controls you too much and you want to be a free individual and you, you know, want more money or whatever the issue is, there is always some semblance of, you know, the aliens who are controlling you in the back of your brain. I mean, yeah, Gary, so there's unless this, you want to live on a fucking island, you know, there's you're gonna you're gonna live under some sort of of control, you know? Oh but sure. You have and, free and will, it, god damn it. 
And having said that, it's art that perhaps lulled me into this state, and it's art that made me realize that I've been lulled into this state. So art ultimately right. still wins. Well, yeah. Okay. <laughs> put in, put in perspective, baby. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, anything else you guys want to bring up? I mean, I feel like this movie is really well constructed, has an amazing subtext to it, is basically the best the best thing to use when trying to convey to people what ideology means. Um, yeah. Can, can we, what you guys got? can we define ideology? So I, I wrote down the full Zizek quote. As sure. Well. Yeah. Um, so Zizek, uh, imperfect guide to ideology, which is a, a great, is it a documentary? Whatever it is. Um, he says that we think we live in a post ideological society, um, but he says we are not interpolated as subjects who must do their duty, but as subjects of pleasure. And what he, I think, means there is that it's not that the state telling you you will be a good American and you will obey, but the the state, uh, or not the state per se, but ideology kind of mandates that we consume, that we enjoy, as the movie sh- shows. So Zizek considers that this ideology is to realize your true potential, be yourself, live a satisfying life. Um, This is reflected in the movie. There's a guy on the TV, I think it's a drugstore, where he's essentially saying, like, ignore the pessimist, you know, be your true potential. Uh, We all need to be optimist. Um, And then uh, you quoted this earlier, uh, Jared. I almost called you Zizek. Uh, When you put the glasses on, you see (laughs) dictatorship and democracy. It is the invisible order that sustains your uh, apparent freedom. Um, then he says later, we, we think ideology is something blurring our view. Ideology should be glasses that distort our view. And the critique of ideology should be the opposite. You take off the glasses. So in other words, Zizek talks about how ideology is not necessarily wool pulled over your eyes, kind of. It's more like the spontaneous relationship you have to the world, right? It is those dreams that you don't necessarily realize are dictated by the social order, um, things you've been told growing up and stuff like that. So isn't ideology, I'm a little bit undereducated in this area, but doesn't it come up in Lenin? Like it's not a Zizek thing. Yeah. So ideology, as Zizek is using it, originates uh, with Marx. And again, like uh, Karl Popper makes an argument uh, against Marx that says you have this idea of Plato that we are all blind to the, the true world out there. We're stuck in a cave. And Karl Popper says it's a shitty idea and leads to bad things. And uh, he says this idea essentially persists to Marx, who says, not that we're in a cave, but we have the wool pulled pulled over our eyes. Um, He calls ideology, it's like a a camera obscura, which is essentially like, I guess in old photographs, the the negative would be like upside down or something. So in other words, that we are viewing through capitalist ideas, through ideology, um, we're we're viewing a distorted world. Um, Now, People like Zizek and Lacan and other people like that kind of take that vision metaphor and kind of put it deep-seated in your brain, right? It's not just that you've been lied to or you're seeing things in a distorted way, but that the, the way that you desire things is in itself ideological. Does that answer your question? Yeah, because I I knew that it had – he was – reference is he developing the idea of ideology he's just referencing back to marx I, I knew yeah it was something it, like it's that. like his take on marx marxist ideology and i think different branches of marxism would argue about what precisely it is like zizek is as a is a psychoanalyst or he comes from that sort of camp of jacques lacan so their idea of ideology is very psychoanalytic in this Lacanian, Freudian kind of way. And some Marxists would be like, no, fuck that. That's wrong. Um, so it is like a development of Marx that other Marxists might take issue with. All right. Well, the last thing I want to say, and this goes back to what I was talking about earlier. Uh, and I, I just, I don't know. I, I have this way to say it that I think is awfully sexy. So when I'm saying that people actually like being awakened to a, quote, false narrative, I always tell people that. People don't take the red pill. And when I say the red pill, I don't mean men's rights activists. I mean the general idea of being awakened to the truth. People don't take it because they prefer the truth. They take it because it tastes good. I imagine the red pill being like a really good jelly bean that people just love because they love shattering the grand illusion. There's something very uplifting to it for our generation. It's it's quite odd. It's cathartic. I guess so. People want to feel that oh, now I get it, or oh, now there's a reason why I was so miserable before, and now I have the goalpost in front of me that can get me out of this situation. This is People why, don't like being lied to. This is why the simple Rick 
gag. It's not the that they don't gag. like being lied to. It's they like having I don't know whether or not they're being lied to. I think doesn't really matter. Lying is the wrong word. They don't. You know, they, they like seeing it, it, the transparency of of what why they feel a certain way and how the world works and it just you know once you see through it, like you said, it tastes good. I think uh, it's the the pure joy of shattering the grand illusion. Exactly. <laughs> you even see in the Flat Earth documentary, they're watching Dark City. They watch. They talk about the Matrix all the time. They talk about Fight Club. Point is, is that our generation and the people before us are brought up with these cultural cinema narratives of wake up, wake up, wake up. And now, we now that we have all this conversation on the internet, I think people are starting to wake up, but they don't know what to wake up to, or there isn't an agreement on what we're waking up to. Yeah, that's that's Amen. my theory. That's a, that's w- well said. Okay, um, uh, let's go. Uh, on. I, I, I was just going to bring up the, you know, you said uh, anything else to bring up about They Live. I mean, John Carpenter, dude, he's a renaissance man. Let's not forget, he makes the, the score to all of his movies. Damn. Right? Yeah. And it, they're amazing. And then uh, the, the whole idea, uh, we didn't really talk about going between black and white and color. You know, that's a pretty mm. bold choice. The fact that the world is naturally apparently in black and white, right? Uh, uh, mm. And that that they colorized it for us to, I guess, make it, like you said, sexier. <laughs> oh, um, I didn't thought about that. But at the end of the movie, when he destroys the signal, it's not in black and white, is it? It's it's still in color, right? Good point. Maybe I'm wrong. No, I <laughs> yeah, I, I remember hearing a line that sounded about. like that, but I wasn't. I know what line you're talking about. I just didn't really understand it. So maybe you're right. Maybe you're wrong. You know, an- another thing about this movie and since we're, we've been talking about Zizek you know he has he always says I would sell my mother into slavery to see V for Vendetta too <laughs> and I, I feel the same he way he always says that he says he it a says lot he says the same because his point like over and over yeah again. he it's says amazing. the same yeah the, the, the point being what happens after the revolution I want to know what happens after they realize that they're all aliens do they just exterminate them all do they say oh wow I want to keep the status quo let's try and put that thing or that uh, signal make it work again so i don't have to see these aliens anymore will the aliens still have all the money and all the ability to buy these people off what happens and I if wanna, all the aliens leave see. and all the and all the champions of industry leave the planet does the earth go to shit what happens i think uh well they kick ass and chew bubble they gum. Kick ass and chew bubble gum. There, there's the zizek joke I, i'll go into it if you want but about the red ink well, that's an ex- explanation of ideology, right? Well, right, but that's the problem with the movie is they, they – so, sorry, to step back, there's a guy who gets sent to, I think, the Gulag or Siberia or something in Russia and says to his friend, if I'm writing to you in red ink, I'm lying. If I'm writing to you in blue ink, I'm telling the truth. Uh, and then the first letter the friend gets is, you know, everything's great here in Siberia, plenty of food to eat, the work isn't too hard, the only problem is we have no blue ink. So Zizek says that means that <laughs> we kind of – lack the blue ink the 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 ability to articulate our unfreedom right and i think in this case once the ideology is gone we still kind of lack what it means to live authentically or freely or whatever you want to say gotcha okay jared can we get your best i'm already eating from the trash can all the time the name of this trash can (laughs) is ideology okay so the opening of Zizek's Pervert's Guide to Ideology him is him talking about they live and the opening line is so John Nada says if you don't put on those glasses I'm going to make you eat from that trash can and then Zizek comes in and says but I am already eating from the trash can all the time the name of the trash can is ideology I'm not very good at it <laughs> I already am eating from the trash can all the time the name of this <laughs> trash can is ideology that wasn't very good all right, guys, let's go into the mailbag. So if you want to send us an email, movies at wisecrack.co or send us a voicemail at 213-534-8807 or 21elfgut07. 07, baby. Man, we, we have got the best some phone great number. voicemails. Some of them are long. Got to remind you guys, just try and keep them short. Matter of fact, we're going to be going with the people who send us the shortest we Let's should just start with, we should just put them on triple speed and make them chipmunks. <laughs> we can still hear I don't know them. how to do that in this program, but you're right. I'm going to figure that out for next time. All right, let's start with Tyler. Hey, Wisecrack. This is Tyler here from Virginia. 
Uh, love your guys' show and the podcast. I've been listening to the Interstellar podcast, and uh, you guys were talking about how it parallels 2001 A Space Odyssey in a lot of ways. And uh, I just wanted to hear your guys' thoughts on one of the main parallels that I found in the film, uh, that being the very ending in which each of the respective characters in the movies are put in like a, a transcendent circumstance. The main difference that I found between them, besides relative plot points, was that uh, Stanley Kubrick tells the entire ending visually and doesn't use dialogue like Christopher Nolan does to explain the, the uh, specific plot points that are happening uh, at the time. I want to know what your guys' take on the movie would be if Nolan went more on Kubrick's route and uh, kind of left it extremely ambiguous and up to the audience to decide uh, what the plot points were. Um, yeah, again, great podcast, guys. Keep it up, and I'm excited to hear your thoughts on this. Thanks. All right, Tyler, thank you so much for calling in. That is so, a great question, Tyler. <laughs> I, I have an answer. I don't think it's the answer, but my answer would be that in Interstellar, they specifically write that this prism or whatever that Matthew McConaughey is floating through is a three-dimensional space that was created for him by fifth-dimensional objects. So they basically took this profound thing that's happening and like dumbed it down for humans to be able to experience. But I would argue that you can read the end of 2001 as it was not dumbed down. This is a human being experiencing the sixth, sixth dimension reality or something akin to that and basically not being able to comprehend it. And so we see something that's essentially nonsensical. Yeah, I was going to say I would love to see the opposite of what he said. I would love to see the the Chris Nolan explainy version of the end of 2001 <laughs> where he's going through the Stargate going, all right, wow, they made it red and purple, and oh, my God, I'm going through a canyon now. <laughs> this one, they must have made this for me, and there's, oh, whoa, I'm freeze-framing now. This is weird. You know? <laughs> I'd watch that. I love this white room, man. I know exactly where this thing came from. It's yeah. all quantifiable. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh <laughs> Let me explain it for you. Whoa. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's what I would say. I'd say they, they're they kind of, as Tyler pointed out, suggesting pretty similar messages. It's just that Kubrick wants to show the limits of human perception while no one just wants to explain the limits of human perception. All right. <laughs> Which is hard to do. They're both very hard to do, and hats off to both of them for trying to figure it out. I'd say two right. hats off to Kubrick and... Pretty good half hat off to <laughs> Nolan. Good try. <laughs> All right. Uh, we got one from Jacob. Not our Jacob, at least I don't think. Hey, Wisecrack. This is Jacob from Minneapolis. Uh, I was calling about uh, the Interstellar episode you asked for our favorite movie cries. I, like like uh, your co-host on that episode, Rebecca, I am I get wrecked in movies when people cry and just like, I get very emotional. Um, particular scenes that show people just expressing basic human decency and kindness in like in a kind of a surprising way always really like kind of guts me. Um, so I was going to say Ladybird um, when after Ladybird catches her boyfriend who played by Lucas Hedges. Uh, kissing another boy in the bathroom. Of course, bathroom. Of course, they they both go to a Catholic high school, so it's a big deal, and you know, it's obviously pretty traumatic for him. Um, but he he confronts her at work, and he starts talking to her, kind of just matter of factly about life and everything, and and she's very mean to him, and he starts talking about the issue and just breaks down crying. And it's, it's a beautiful performance. And immediately she just stops being mean and just gives him a hug. And that scene just, it just wrecks me. It just, the way that, the way that she shows empathy to him, even after being hurt by him, it's just beautiful scene. Lucas Hedges is amazing in that movie. Both of them are amazing in that movie. But yeah, thank you for your podcast. Love it. Thanks, Jacob. Oh man. Yeah, that was great. I haven't seen that movie. Ryan, have you seen it? Yeah, I love Lady Bird, and I, and I love the scene uh, he's talking about. That's a, that's a definitely a good example of, of people 
bawling in a movie and and it translate it affects you or should all right we just got one last one from jack go jack hey wisecrack uh it's jack here i just listened to your podcast on interstellar and it got me thinking about the one and only time i've seen the movie which was on a trans a transatlantic flight uh and i felt like I haven't gone back to see the movie for one reason, and that's because my experience watching it in an airplane uh, overnight was really profound, and I, I, I really enjoyed seeing uh, the large, expansive shots of the craft tumbling through the blackness of space and then being able to look out my window and seeing the the nothingness around me. And I just thought it was a really interesting experience, and I was wondering what your guys' idea is on uh, the context through which you view art. All right, I'm going to stop Jack right there just because we're running a little bit out of time and it's a lot longer than I thought it was. I, I think love that that's a question. Keep going. Me too, because context can be everything. I always joke with Ryan that so much of how much you enjoy a movie can just be based on if you had enough for lunch that day. Especially you, Jared. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, if you get hangry. Not me. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, a movie can be hilarious if you see it with the right crowd or if you just see it alone, it could just fall completely flat. A movie can be really emotionally resonant if you see it with the right crowd or if you see it with a bunch of people who are disengaged. You ever, you ever uh, been watching a movie with a friend and you can just tell that they don't care or they're not into it and it just ruins the experience even mm -hmm. if you love the movie? Hate that. Oh yeah, definitely. I hate that too. Do you guys have any experiences like that where you watched a movie in a very particular setting that really elevated it? Absolutely. Well, I w w when I first moved to Austin, you know, uh, the Alamo Draft House gave me that, you know, because basically every single movie, you know, if, if it was, uh, uh, they'd have cool barf bags for for movies and and weird drinks, and they just made it a big event. You know, and it just it really enhanced the movie whenever everyone you got a whole people that are amped to see the movie. And, uh, 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 yeah, I love I love that whole thing in terms of things like he's talking about. I saw Sully and Flight, the Zemeckis movie on airplanes, which are both about airplane crashes. Um, <laughs> How was that? Uh, uh, which was I, I think enhanced it. I love 40X movies, as you know, Jared, like mm. Jungle Books and 40X was solid anyway. So, yeah, I love anything that enhances the movie beyond just the movie. I think that that's really cool. It should be continued. Do you have anything like that, Alec? I've definitely been in the situation where I'm like, watch this awesome movie, and then the friend's not into it, and then I probably never watch the movie again. Um, <laughs> I watch a lot of movies when I go to L.A., uh, which is my primary experience. But this is probably not exactly what he's looking for. And you know this, Jared. I was in a bar and there was just this fucking disgusting movie on in the background, like with no sound. There was a lot of like pulsating anuses. And I was like, I think this is a David Cronenberg movie. Let me ask Jared. <laughs> uh, and it was, it was naked lunch, but just the experience of being in a bar watching the silent, this movie silently while like anuses pulsate. It was a great experience for me. Like I loved the movie for that experience. It gave me in that bar. <laughs> Yeah, that movie actually might be best to have on in the background in a bar. Yeah, I have seen that movie once and I don't know what I think about it because even at the time I was just like, what the fuck am I watching? I, I, Which I think is the point. Yeah, I don't know if that movie with sound makes sense. It certainly didn't make sense without sound, which I think elevated it. Yeah, <laughs> there was there was one. I'll, I'll We'll move on after this, but there was one. One experience that I curated to do exactly what Jack was doing, and it was I had never seen Lawrence of Arabia, and so I picked a time when it was playing at the Egyptian Theater in Los Angeles, this historic theater, and it was going to be playing in 70 millimeter, and it was going to be a packed house, and I'm going to be seeing all the amazing vistas that David Lean put in the movie, and if I was going to enjoy Lawrence of Arabia for the first time as a film nerd, it was going to be at the Egyptian at 7.30 p.m. in 70 millimeter with a fucking packed house, and I still hated the movie. <laughs> it's so fucking boring. It's so boring. I don't know. That that's uh, a movie that is awesome to watch just for the spectacle of it, of like, yeah, man, they don't make movies like this anymore with, like, you need 60 ADs just to pull off this one shot with, like, 400 people in the background doing a war. But other than that, kind of boring. Yeah, no, I disagree. I love Lawrence of Arabia. When was um, the last time you saw it? 
Uh, it was back in Austin, uh, back in Austin, so probably nine years ago. But I still love that movie. The movie's fun, <laughs> not okay. fun, at, not fun in the traditional sense. But uh, I, I I have one uh, uh, t- uh, screening to me, me and my friend Greg Weimeyer. Uh, we used to program movies every Sunday at the Twenty First Street Co op. And uh, uh, one of them was Street Trash, and we and if you know if you've ever seen that movie, the uh, the people drink this gross soda that makes them melt and turn into this slime monster. Uh, and anyway, we all drank uh, the 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 we we all had a nice can of the Street Trash soda while we all watched that movie and had a great time. Really enhanced the experience. Sorry, I got to do one more. <laughs> do you guys know the movie Following with John Cho? No. And how it no. it came out last year. It's oh yeah, yeah, the internet movie. It's, yeah, it's about how the whole thing takes place on either like FaceTime oh, yeah. or stuff like that. It's kind of like that movie, like Defriended or whatever, that all takes place on Skype. So it's a similar premise, and I watched that on a plane. Similarly, but it wasn't really the plane that was important, but the fact that I was watching it on a laptop and the movie itself was like a window in a movie full of other windows. And that was an interesting, that was an interesting experience for me. I would even say that in on some level, the movie, although I, I was actually on a plane to whatever, uh, I think the director would even maybe say that yes, it's optimized for a theater experience, but there is a unique experience about watching a movie that is mostly the aesthetic of screens and laptops on a screen laptop that's awesome actually it, it, and people out there if you're gonna do that you should also watch nacho vigalandro's uh, open windows st- starring elijah wood and sasha gray on your laptop because it's the same aesthetic okay all right guys so sorry uh, jack just asked such a good question that we were scattered for a bit but let's get to more of these hashtag wahs you want to go for it ryan all right so from uh we have mandorka uh, entering into hashtag wah, uh, Michael Caine as Alfred at the end of Dark Knight Rises, standing over the Wayne family grave when he tells him, I failed you. It wrecks him every time. Uh, pretty good one. Pretty good one. Um, we also Then we have from Joe, we have Matt Damon at the end of Contagion. Um, I don't really remember that it. one. Yeah, haven't seen it. It's a good movie. I really like that movie. Soderbergh. Hell yeah. And then we have um, Joe Dan um, gave a couple good, really good ones. Patricia Arquette in Boyhood at the end, <coughs> at the end of Boyhood. Uh, sorry, I'll take that again. Patricia Arquette in Boyhood when her son's leaving for college. She's crying at the end. Good. Tom Hanks in Castaway. Wilson. Good one. Boys in the Hood when they bring Ricky's dead body to the house. I love that movie. And yes, that that is that wrecks you. I can see it. Inside Out when Riley comes back home to her parents. I can see it. And the last scene of Warrior, uh, which I thought was a funny one to bring up. Joel Edgerton, Tom Hardy, and Nick Nolte, enough said is what he said. And, um, yeah, if you haven't seen Warrior, the end of it, a lot of crying. It's good. A lot of powerful music swelling. Those are some good ones. So, yeah, if you'd like to enter it uh, into hashtag WAD, just send it over to movies at wisecrack.co. Does man- does oh, we Mandy also got count? one from Joe. What? Does Mandy count? The Nicolas Cage movie, yeah, oh, oh, when sure. He's, when he's screaming, well, he's crying he's and crying screaming. Up. You know, it's it's touching. Okay. Uh, one, we actually got another one from Joe. He says, "There's no way I'm going to allow you guys to leave out Will Smith crying from The Pursuit of Happiness, which I also oh, yeah. have not seen." Yeah. So e- e- yeah, it's an okay movie, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> Uh, all right, we're going to go just one more mailbag question. We're going to wrap it up. So this one's from Daniel. He said, hello, really love the podcast. I recently listened to the one about Inglorious Bastards, and I actually quite disagree with the assessment you made about Hans Landa. I think he hated Jews as much as any Nazi, and I think you can look at the strudel scene for proof. Back in World War II, due to a shortage in butter production, apple strudels were made using pig lard, which isn't kosher. So when Landa makes Shoshana eat the strudel, He's doing it in a way to show his dominance over her. He knew she was Jewish, and even though he didn't kill her out of curiosity, he was still getting pleasure out of distressing her for being who she was. That is a deep cut, Daniel. I don't know about how... I mean, I'm sure you're right. I don't know if uh, Tarantino was thinking about that. I don't know if it matters whether he was thinking about that, but that's a super interesting read. What do you think, Ryan? 
Or do you, yeah. or you have, have you seen the movie recently? I forgot you weren't on that one. I wasn't on that one, but uh, 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 but yeah, that 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 is an interesting t- uh, little trivia fact there. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm still not entirely sure. I buy that he knew it was Shoshana, but I've gotten a lot of emails, and it seems like most people roundly disagree with me, which is fine. I I'm totally open to being wrong. <laughs> All right, guys, if you want to send us an email, movies at wisecrack.co or once again, voicemails at 213-534-8807. I want to thank Alec and Ryan for gabbing about this movie with me today. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. Where can we find you guys on the internet? Ryan. Oh, Ryan's Game Show. New episode, Extreme Laundry Folding. Two two moms came over and competed for $20 to see who could fold my laundry the best. (laughs) Uh, Check it out, man. All right, and Alec. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at WisecrackAlec. That's A-L-E-C. I also released a podcast called The Order of Things where I interview philosophers. Check that out. It's on all the things that you listen to podcasts on. All right. We'll see you guys next week. Ryan, send us out. Goodbye from Hollywood, California. Let's go get some bubblegum. Peace.